Now in this chapter, 2 Samuel 2, we get to see a miracle and we get to see a tragedy. The miracle is a man becoming a king without striving, without domineering, and without pushing people around. And his rule is peaceful. Can you see the miracle in that? A guy who doesn't bang heads to get to the top? But the tragedy is a man making a king by the normal way, striving, domineering, and pushing people around. This man causes chaos and destruction to himself and to others all around him. Now, who would ever want to be governed by this domineering, striving, pushy guy? The answer is nobody, not me, man. But the problem is we are. The Bible says everyone lives in futility, darkened in understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And you don't want to end in destruction because your heart is hard. Now this chapter was written so that you would want to live in that miracle of a peaceful government that doesn't come from a heart with selfish ambition, but it comes from a heart that is sensitive to the Lord. So I'm gonna read the first few verses here in the chapter. It says, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Now, this is David seeking the Lord for his next move because this is the question. David has been anointed to be the king of Israel ever since he was a little kid. He's the youngest of eight brothers and he's been waiting and waiting and waiting. And he's done a lot of things. He's been kind of the court musician for King Saul He's been a commander over a thousand troops. He's been on the run because Saul has been trying to kill him. And he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. And now King Saul is dead. Now David does not assume, oh, that's it. I'm king now. I'm just going to walk right in there. And everybody's going to say, it's the king. He's finally here. He doesn't assume any of that. 
So he asks the Lord, what would you like? Shall I go anywhere in Judah? And the issue there is that he lives in a city called Ziklag, which is in Philistine territory. And he's probably thinking it's not very practical for me to govern Israel from Philistine territory. Maybe it would be a good idea if I move. But even then he says, well, what do you think, God? God says, good idea. Okay, where shall I go? And God says, go to Hebron. So, that's where David goes. And he picks up, you notice, his wives. He's got two of them. We'll get into that sometime, I'm sure. But he moves all of his men with their families to Hebron, and they move in. Can you imagine, in a city, all of a sudden, all of David's guys move in? And they're not moving in as soldiers who are saying, okay, we're here now, move over, supply our needs, here's my donkey, take care of that. You know, like a bunch of visiting troops. They're not demanding anything, they're just moving in with their families. It's really, really normal. And so you've got all these guys moving in, they're families. And you know what? Families are the building blocks of society. And David is building a society. He's kind of regrounding it after this defeat of Saul, scattering of Israel, everything disorganized, no king, no government. Here comes David with all these families moving into town. And you know, I can imagine a lot of conversations. Like, who are you? Oh, hi, I'm an Israelite too, this is my family, this is my kids. What are you doing here? Oh, I'm with David. Did you hear about David? No. Oh, he is fabulous. We're all his men, and yeah, we're gonna live here because we asked God, and God said we're gonna live here. Huh. Well, what kind of a guy is David like? Oh, man. He's, he's the best guy I've ever worked for. He talks to God. God tells him what to do. He has been saving us all this time in the wilderness. He saved us with the Philistines. It's amazing. No way. Wow. So all these families are coming in and living in Hebron, all right? That sets the stage for what happens next. Verse four. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, you are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant. 
for your master Saul is dead. And also, the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. Now, David, again, doesn't demand anything of the people of Judah. Hardly says a word. He just moves there. And the men of Judah come to him, the whole tribe, not just the guys at Hebron, and they say, will you rule over us? David's not even campaigning. Here are my promises if I'm elected. He's just living there. And so all these guys in Judah say, wouldn't that be fabulous if he ruled over us? Wouldn't we want this guy? Oh, we want this guy. So they ask him and he accepts, which shows humility because he's accepting kingship over one tribe. And remember, he was anointed for all of Israel. So he could just say, well, you know, this is too tiny. This is not what God said. What is just one tribe? I'm destined for greatness, so go get the other guys. And then when maybe when you have them, then maybe, you know, we'll talk. But I'm not going to do that. You know, John the Baptist said that a man can receive nothing except it comes from above. And so what David is saying is, okay, if God is offering, I'm accepting. I'm okay with that. So the other thing about humility here is that David is waiting on God. He's been waiting since he's a little kid. And even now, as God is beginning to fulfill his promise to David, he's still got to wait. Isn't that interesting? But he's waiting. Now, why would God take so long? Let me ask you this. Have you been waiting for God to fulfill a promise that he made to you? Have you ever wondered why it is taking so long? You know, why don't you bless me now while I'm young and strong? And I can take full advantage of it. Why is it taking so everlastingly long? Can we hustle things a little bit? I know you do glaciers, but you also do hummingbirds, right? <laughs> Well, you know, God does a work in our hearts. And as we wait, we depend upon God to enable us to wait. And one of the things that happens as we're waiting is that God shows us he is more important than the gift that he promised to give. And he does that so that when he answers and gives the promise, we don't say, wow, this is fun. And then we run off away from God. We esteem the gift greater than the giver. And we live badly and lose everything. And one way that God ensures 
that we value him above his promise is to make us wait. And that keeps us dependent and that makes us humble. And that ensures that we can keep what he gives. Does everybody get that? So David is content to go at God's speed. And he says, okay, I'll be king of Judah. And then he goes on to bless the men of Jabesh Gilead. This is a town that's in the northeast. And it's far away from David. But they tell him, the, the house of Judah, they tell him, the men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. You remember that when Saul was killed by the Philistines, they took his body, they cut off his head, they hung his body and Jonathan, his son's body, on the walls of a city, Beth Shean, and they just let him hang there and rot. And it is dishonoring. It is a, a, a show of contempt. And the men of Jabesh Gilead said, that's not right. That was Saul's first mission and victory was to deliver the men of Jabesh Gilead and they said, we're gonna go get those bodies. And they went by night, and it's kind of a ninja Mossad raid. And they got those bodies, and they brought them back to Jabesh Gilead, and they burned them and buried the bones and fasted for seven days, showing honor to the one who delivered them. They remembered. And David says, in verse five, you are blessed of the Lord for you have shown this kindness to your Lord. And that word kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. And it's probably the most important word in the Hebrew Bible because it talks about the quality that God himself is. Strong, faithful covenant love. And David commends them and says, well done. And he blesses them. And he says, the Lord show chesed and emeth to you. That same loving kindness and then emeth, which is translated truth, because those are the two things you need in a relationship. You need strong, faithful covenant love and you need faithfulness that never changes. You know, a relationship goes through ups and downs and sometimes it's groovy and sometimes it's really a pain. And everybody who's married knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> because this is the reality. And marriage being what it is, you have to work through that. You can't just say, well, you know, you're a toxic human being and I'm done with you. You said, yes, I do. Good luck to you. <laughs> and here's how you do a relationship with chesed and a meth. Loving kindness 
and truth. You do not change depending on how the relationship is going. But what you do is you seek the Lord for that covenant love and that truth and then you bring that into the relationship. And you outlast the difficult time. That's how you do a relationship. And what it means is you have got to be connected up to God. There is no other source. So David is connected with God. He is the Messiah. And he's saying, well done to you guys. And I am going to show the same faithfulness and love to you guys. Just want to let you know, though Saul is dead, the men of Judah have anointed me king over Judah. And if you want, you can be in on this rule. He's not pushing. He's not domineering. He's just saying, here I am. So that is an amazing way to build a kingdom, don't you think? Have you ever known anybody to do that? This comes from God, but there's another way to build a kingdom, and we're going to see that right now. Look at verse 8. But Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. All right, Abner, he was Saul's commander-in-chief of his armies. And somehow, though Saul got killed, his sons got killed, a lot of guys in Israel got killed, somehow Abner survived that battle. And Abner is a great man. He's one of these guys that you would say, oh, he's a great guy. Very forceful personality, bigger than life. He's used to being at the top of things. He sees Israel scattered, disorganized. And he says, I'm going to regather Israel. I'm going to put everything back together. And he takes Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and he says, I'm going to make you king over Israel. And what he does is he begins in Mahanaim. Again, that is north and east in Israel. It's the furthest away from the Philistines. He's going to start there. But then what he does is he begins a process of bringing in these other tribes of Israel until at a certain point, the whole northern part of Israel is somewhat organized under Ishbosheth. And this process takes evidently about five years. Because David, if you notice in verse 11, he's king over Judah for seven years and six months. But Ishbosheth ruled 
two years over Israel. That is, over the reorganized, regrouped Israel. So that means it took Abner about five years to start in Mahanaim and begin to unify. And how is he unifying? Well, he's a guy of action, and he does it in the old-fashioned way. He says, you're going to be king. You're going to follow him. He's king. He's the son of Saul. That's the government. Get with it. People go, okay, he's the king. He's the son of Saul. All right. And so Abner is working his way through, and he has to sort of dominate, I guess. He's a forceful personality. But Abner is the power behind this. Does everybody get it? It's not Ishbosheth. He's a puppet. And then, with nothing left in the north, Abner begins to turn his eyes on Judah in the south. Let's read in verse 12. Now, Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. And Azahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Azahel pursued Abner. And in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. And Abner looked behind him and said, are you Azahel? He said, I am. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or your left. Lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Azahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Azahel fell down and died, stood still. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amma, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, 
As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together there, they were missing of David's servants, 19 men and Azahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who died. And they took up Azahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now look at this. Abner says, okay, now let's take on Judah. You think, what for? Abner knows better than to do this, and he does it anyway. You know, he knows David. He's known him since he was a little kid because he was there when David was just court musician for Saul. And he watched David become a commander of a thousand. And Abner's not stupid. He knows David is really dangerous and competent. And he knows that God is with him. He saw David kill Goliath, all right? So this is not a new discovery for Abner. He even knows that David is anointed by God to rule Israel. He knows this. He knows that David is king over Judah. And he's ruling peacefully. No threats to Ishbosheth. No demands like, hey, I am anointed by God. You're not anointed by God. Watch out, or I'll run you over. Nothing. David's been administering Judah while Abner's going around and pushing everybody into line and reorganizing Israel. So there's no good reason for Abner to start poking at Judah and saying, we're going to take you over. It's outrageous for him to do that. Does everybody get that? The only possible reason could be like, well, the 12 tribes belong together under one king, under God. Okay. But Abner's ambition says, Ishbosheth is the king, and I am behind Ishbosheth. It's his ambition here, okay? So, one day Abner goes out from Mahanam with a group of soldiers. And it's a big group of soldiers. So big that he could lose 360 of them and still have survivors. So that's not a little group of guys who maybe want to negotiate and talk. They're all armed. This is a... I don't even know what the word is. It's battalion, a group, a little bunch of soldiers, but they're a lot of them. And then this is the first time that Joab pops up in David's history. Now, Zeruiah is David's sister. 
That makes Joab his nephew. It's family. But Joab is more like Abner than David. He also is an influential, powerful man, and he's ambitious. So here's Abner coming down with a bunch of guys, and Joab comes to meet them, and there they sit around the pool of Gibeon, just kind of eyeing one another. You know, it's like, it's like a Clint Eastwood Western. <laughs> and they're just kind of looking. And don't you think this is kind of weird? Nothing like, hey, you know, we've sort of unified Israel, and, well, you're a tribe of Israel. You want to you wanna throw in with us? How does that look to you? What do you think about that? Can we start some negotiations? No, they're not. Nobody's there to talk. It's just... <whistles> tumbleweed. It's a standoff. And finally, Abner, Abner says, well, let's, let's get 12 young men together. And they're not talking about playing dodgeball. They're talking about Let's let them do a little battle, see who wins. And of course, they do something really stupid. Each one of them has this move. You grab them by the hair and you stick your sword in. Well, they, everybody does it. All 12 guys, 24 guys, they're dead. And that's like the trigger. Everybody gets into it. And now it's mayhem. Everybody's fighting everybody. All they were looking for was just some reason to go all out, and they got it. Now, Abner shows that he knows better than to do this. And that's what I find so weird. I don't know if you noticed that. But the first one is this thing with Azahel and Abner. Somehow, Azahel gets it in his mind, I'm going to get Abner. And if I get him, this battle is over with, or something. So he's running after Abner, and Abner's going, is that you? He goes, yeah. He goes, well, don't do this. Don't make me kill you. And he tries to give him good reasons. You're not going to do this. Go after somebody else, maybe that you can knock off, but don't try me. And then he says, how could I face your brother Joab? Now that's reasonable, isn't it? Gee, I'd feel bad. Well, I wished he'd thought of that before he started this whole thing. But he says, if I have to kill you, this is not going to be good. Oh, good thinking. Well, Azahel won't stop, so it's like, it's him or me. Great, beautiful, well done. But then there's this other thing where they've regrouped in verse 26. And all the guys are on a hill, which makes it better to defend. And he blows a trumpet and says, shall the sword devour forever? Oh, what words of wisdom. Don't make war, he says. How wasteful. Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? 
Well, Joab basically says, you started it, pal. He says, if you had spoken in the morning, all the guys would have walked away from this. So here's Abner, and he knows the right things to say. Oh, war is so wicked. War devours life. Well, he lost 360 guys. He should know. He knows that David is king over Judah. He knows it's the wrong thing, but he does it anyway. Is that not strange? It's his ambition. And see, this is the crazy thing. Got two ways to live here. Here's David seeking the Lord and receiving what the Lord gives. Does anybody get killed? Does anybody feel like they're being oppressed or forced to do what they don't want to do? Everybody's going, wow, David is phenomenal. But over here, here's Abner. He knows what is right intellectually but he still follows his ambition and he causes destruction and he's even going to get his own self killed. That wasn't grammatical, but that's what's going to happen. He has just set in motion things that are going to get him killed. And here's the difference. David has a heart that is sensitive to God and Abner has a heart that is not sensitive to God. And what we need is to be sensitive to God so we won't destroy others around us and even destroy ourselves. Now, we need the insensitivity of our hearts cut away. This is what God does. God gave Abraham the sign of his covenant. He says, this is what's going to mark you as being in covenant with me. And he says, I want you to circumcise yourself. God built into the human anatomy a foreskin that when that is cut away, it makes it, that part, more sensitive and naturally clean. When the foreskin is left in place, it provides a place to trap dirt and bacteria and is naturally unclean. And so God makes the human body in a certain way so that that has to be done. And cutting means cutting. And it hurts. And you know when you're supposed to do it? When the baby is eight days old. Doesn't even know what hit it. <laughs> it's got to be done, says God. Or else you're not in the covenant. Aren't you glad you weren't there for that? I wasn't there either. Now, I only mention this 
Because God applies this figuratively to the heart and it's a greater action. In Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, God says, so circumcise your hearts, stiffen your neck no longer. If the heart isn't made sensitive to God, it will naturally be unclean and insensitive to God. And that makes possible arrogance, ignorance, and every kind of selfish ambition and wickedness. Just like we read this morning in Jeremiah 17, the sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. It's not erasable. It's not changeable. But how do you circumcise your own heart? Because Jeremiah said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, God makes a promise in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's the only two times that circumcision is mentioned in Deuteronomy. And in chapter 30, verse 6, he says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. When God does that work, the whole righteous intent of the law is fulfilled. He says you're gonna love the Lord your God with all your heart. And everything comes out of that. It's the operation of God. Now, this is brought into the New Testament. Jesus does this for us in our hearts. Colossians 2, verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That means God does it. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So he says, the cross is what cuts us and puts all that selfish ambition to death. And then as we are raised with Christ, that gives us a new mind and a new heart and a sensitivity to God. But what I notice is that God still cuts us. You know, it's easy to think about the cross being this abstract theoretical thing, but there is real pain and suffering involved. And I want you to turn to Psalm 119 and we'll see this. In verse 67. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. 
The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. Now here's what he's saying. Before I was afflicted, I was lost. I did my own thing. I was insensible toward you. I didn't care about you and following you. I did my own thing. And then you afflicted me. You made my life tough. I think part of it is you make your own bad choices just like Abner did. And then it all comes back on you. And it comes back bigger than you can handle. And you say, God, what am I doing? I'm doing this to me with my own hand. What am I doing? Help. And God answers. And then you realize, you know what? I need to go God's way. Going my own way is pure destruction. And so he even says, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your ways. I can even look back on all of that hurt and pain and just realize I need to know God. I need to walk with him. So you can even say, thank you, God. Thank you for that pain. Now, how do you know that your heart is circumcised, that it is sensitive to God? And the answer is, in verse 70 of Psalm 119, it says, their heart is as fat as grease. You could say that their heart is enclosed by whale blubber. It is insulated, it is bulletproof. Nothing is gonna get through that. That's what he's talking about. But I delight in your law. Now there's the difference. With that huge amount of insulating Around your heart, you don't care ding-dong for anything God has said. You can take the whole Ten Commandments and throw it down the well. See if I care. Give me that Bible. I don't like that one. I don't like that one either. But see, if your heart is sensitive to the Lord, then you are going to tremble at the Word of God. And that will be more important to you than money or sex, power, ambition. It will be your life. It's not an idle word, said Moses. Indeed, it is your very life. That's the crucial difference. What is the word of God to you? And that tells you where you're at. So, do you tremble at God's word? Are you sensitive to it? 
And you know, when you, if you find that you're not, you can say, God, will you work in me? And that really makes the difference. He can make you willing. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we're talking about cutting and suffering, being afflicted, to come to a point where we say, I submit. Your ways are better than my ways. I don't want to destroy myself. I don't want to destroy others around me. I don't want to be selfishly ambitious. I don't want to domineer, make others do what I want. But instead, I want what you want. Your promise is that you will circumcise my heart. You will do something that I could never do. Will you please do that through Jesus? Please work your cross into my life and put that ambitious me to death. Please raise me up with Jesus. Make me a person after your own heart. We trust you to do this work. And we thank you for all those times that you afflicted us, that we would come to that point. Thank you for being merciful and kind to us. Thank you for your chesed and your emeth. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.